Hey, Anthem Ventura, Bert Alcorn here. So delighted to be with you, whether you're watching in a backyard, in a Zoom room, or online somewhere. I am so thankful that you are with us today. Anthem Church is one church made up of many communities practicing the way of Jesus together in our city and online. We're many communities because we believe the best kind of gospel growth and transformation happens best in smaller contexts where you can actually be known and loved and cared for. But we are one church because we believe that that which God has asked us to do, it's going to take all of us. And we really do believe we are better together. If you are kind of new or new-ish, we are growing as a church to become resilient disciples who are a faithful family in the face of cultural coercion, live a vibrant life in the spirit, and are empowered as a courageous missional presence in our world. We live this out by organizing everything we do uh, to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he would do if he were us. Some of our church rhythms here, actually our primary church rhythm, is right now, where especially if you are in a Zoom room or a backyard, well done for walking out this rhythm with us. This is the primary way we gather as a church is in Anthem communities, these groups of 10 or 20 or 30 meeting together for teaching, for worship, for discipleship, caring for one another, sharing the Lord's Supper together, praying for one another. But there are a couple of other rhythms to uh, Anthem Ventura. One is actually coming up next week, Big Sunday. Once a month, we gather all our communities together to worship Jesus, share some vision, and share stories from life in our church. And so right now, because of COVID, we are meeting both outside and socially distanced, and then we'll be live streaming that as well for those of you who are watching online and need to remain online. And the third rhythm of Anthem Ventura is core groups. They're smaller groups, groups of three or four or five, gender-specific, meeting together for the purpose of intentional discipleship, accountability, and encouragement. So if you are new or newish to our church, that is an overview of who we are, what we are doing, and how you can join in. The invitation is always open. And in particular, I want to invite you to Big Sunday next week, March 7th. And so that is our next Big Sunday as a church community together. I'm so excited to be teaching with you guys. I'm so excited to be worshiping with you guys and just enjoying a beautiful day outside. And so it's going to be Sunday, March 10th at 10 a.m. in the backfield right across the street from Anthem HQ, 96 McMillan Ave. Cannot wait to see you there. Okay. Go grab your Bible or open up the Bible app on your phone. Head to 1 Peter chapter 5. Today, I have the pleasure of closing our time in 1 Peter. We kicked off this letter back in the fall. And so if you missed out on any of the teachings, the sermons that we've done, I'd encourage you to go back and revisit that. It's also a great time, both when we're opening and closing a book, to revisit some of those Bible project videos to get kind of the big meta narrative and story of 1 Peter. So go ahead and check those resources out sometime. But in the meantime, open Open to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be covering the whole chapter today. And uh, what I want to do is I want to highlight a few key ideas that we have here in chapter 5. But before we do, I actually want to take a quick detour. I don't know if I can call it a detour if we haven't actually started yet. So a pre-tour. We're going to take a pre-tour to clarify and explain the primary subject that Paul is getting at here at the beginning of chapter 5, which is elders or eldership. 
And I know right now we kind of live in a, in a time when it's really cool to shrug off responsibility and it's sort of passe to desire leadership. And, and I'm definitely of the generation that views authority and leadership with some amount of skepticism and uh, see responsibility, especially sacrificial responsibility, as something to be avoided at all costs. I fully know this is the time and place and culture that we are learning about eldership together in. But... But the Bible, for whom is our ultimate authority, is actually really clear on leadership and really clear about church leadership. In particular, it's really clear that, A, there are leaders who lead a local church. It's not some kind of democratic free-for-all where anybody can be anything. And while, yes, we all have gifts to bring to the table, Paul's really clear about that in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Romans 12 as well. However, God has set and ordained and appointed his local church to have leaders. So the Bible's actually really clear that the local church needs leaders. And two, the Bible's really clear about what those leaders actually look like. Qualifications, character, who they should be, what their life should look like. And so of all the things that maybe can be a little bit fuzzy or unclear when we're studying the church and scripture, leadership is actually has a lot of clarity around it. And so what I want to do before we dive into the text itself is I want to provide just a brief theology of eldership, especially if this is new or newish, or if you come from a different church background or heritage that maybe um, doesn't really have a firm grasp on local biblical leadership as it's defined here in the Bible. So first thing right off the bat, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the head of the church, not the senior pastor. Right? Not, not even the elder team, not the pope, not the bishop, not whatever. Jesus is the head of the church. And Paul highlights this particularly in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He is the one that we seek and we follow as he continues the movement that he started 2,000 years ago through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection. After he ascended to heaven, he gave us his spirit and established his church, to be led by elders that he sets aside. So first thing we have to understand about church leadership, it's not about church leadership, it's all about Jesus. So it's his church, it's the movement he started, it's built on him, his finished work, his resurrection, and as he ascended to heaven, he deposited his Holy Spirit into all believers and set up in the church those who should serve as leaders in the church. So it's his church, he's our senior pastor, and underneath the guidance of Jesus are leaders who follow Jesus and encourage others to follow him well. So think of church leaders as first followers of Jesus. We believe the scripture teaches that God gives elders to lead his church, to shepherd, to guard doctrine, and to help equip the saints. And so Anthem Church is an elder-led church that submits to the authority of the Bible. Scripture uses three words, which seem like interchangeably here, to refer to the function of one and the same person. And these three words are presbyteros, episkopos, and poimeian. So presbyteros is where we get the English word elder, right? And you can find it in Acts, Titus, and 1 Peter, right? And this is kind of describing the role of those who would execute God's justice and, and government and administrate the affairs of the church. 
Second word we see in the New Testament is episkopos, and it's where we get the word overseer or even bishop. And we find that in Acts, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 1 Peter as well. And this particular word, episkopos or overseer, is like kind of more leadership. It's a guardian, a gatekeeper, or a watchman. And so one of the ways that we've understood some of these words to mean is, is eldering maybe has to do with theology, leadership, guarding doctrine, episkopos, which is more leadership, strategy, overseeing, that sort of thing. And finally, the word we're probably most familiar with is poimain, which is in the English where we get shepherd or pastor. Right, so pastor just means shepherd. That's where we get this word right here. And we see it in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11, not Ephesians Verse 11, Ephesians 4, verse 11, and then 1 Peter 5 as well, as many, as well as many of the countless images that we have of how Jesus shepherds us and goes before and we are his under shepherds. So three words, what seem to be used interchangeably for the same person or the same office. Presbyteros, meaning elder, episkopos, meaning overseer or bishop, and poimen, meaning shepherd or pastor. This is how the Bible would define church leaders. There are other church leaders. We're not going to get into deacons. We're not going to get into the role members play, anything like that. But it's just a brief theology of eldership to help us understand what we're about to get into. Because you notice in each one of these, we see Peter talks a bit about eldership here. And he starts that in chapter 5, verse 1. So Peter, adding to what we have from Paul, particularly in 1 Timothy and Titus and some other places adds to what Paul says about the characteristics and qualities and the role of elders. And he says this, exhort the elders among you. I, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock among you. Okay, this is Peter talking to the elder. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but, for, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, meaning Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now it's worth pausing here just momentarily and asking why does Peter even talk about eldership in the first place? You guys, especially if you've been tracking with us through the book of 1 Peter, you know Peter's not really getting into church governance, structure, ecclesiology. He's not really talking about things like communion. He's not really talking about worship or in the context of a local church. In the same way Paul would write letters to the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, the church in Philippi, the church in Rome, right? Those are all to a specific church. And yes, we benefit from them and other believers have as well. But those were to a certain local church or kind of regional church context. Whereas Peter just kind of writes to who? Who does chapter one tell us Peter writes to? Elect exiles of the dysphoria, right? Meaning Christians who are scattered, right? All over, particularly Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. This is who he's writing to. So why does Paul talk about church leadership? This feels like a hard left turn if we've been paying attention to the book so far. And there's actually a little bit of debate around this. Some just think Paul, it's just Peter trying to equip the church much like Paul might have been doing. But I believe it's for a reason. It's not accidental and it's not just a tacked on thing at the end. But I believe, and this is why I bring it up, I believe it's actually a counter or an answer to something he brings up 
in the previous chapter. So particularly chapter 4, verse 15, when he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a, what? Meddler. Does anyone else look at that and go, this is kind of weird? Like, I can, I can be on board with murder, thief, or an evildoer. Like, those are bad things. This is kind of a one of these things does not belong situation. Meddler. Why does he tack on meddler there? What even does that mean? We didn't get into this too much last week, but it's worth getting into right now. And this word meddler, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. But other translations give a little bit more context of what this word means. So one translation says meddler uh, swaps out that word with prying into other people's affairs. Or the King James says a busybody in other person's matters. A busybody. So sometimes it's meddler, sometimes it's busybody. But this word means to pry into other people's affairs or a busybody in other people's affairs. So it's one who takes up the supervision of affairs pertaining to others and in no wise to himself, a meddler in other person's affairs. Bottom line, and this is why I bring this up. Peter says, do not suffer for being meddlers, a.k.a. busybodies getting mixed up in other people's affairs. Okay? inappropriately overseeing and being concerned with other people's lives and busyness, but rather be a different kind of overseer. He says, don't be this kind of quote-unquote overseer. Don't be this kind of meddler who inappropriately oversees and gets mixed up in other people's businesses. He says, don't do that. And part of the reason I believe chapter 5 starts the way it does is because Peter's giving us an answer of what kind of overseer should be present. Not a meddler, not a busybody, kind of getting mixed up inappropriately, but a different kind of overseer. And he fleshes out what a good example of overseeing is. Maybe what holy meddling might be. I don't know if that's actually a thing or not, but... Maybe that's what Peter is getting at, is maybe there's a right way to be mixed up in people's lives and there's a wrong way. Maybe there's a right way to impose some kind of advice, wisdom, leadership, authority, and a wrong way. And since he's provided us the negative, chapter 5 provides the positive, and he fleshes out what a good example of overseeing actually is. And first of all, overseeing is actually being a part of someone's life. So here, particularly in verses 2 and 3 here, we have that picture. And he says, shepherd the flock. This is his first command to those who would oversee, to those who would be called elders. Shepherd the flock, which brings to mind an actual shepherd, which brings to mind all the parables and stories of Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd. And then we think of stories like the, the lost sheep and kind of the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And we think of maybe shepherds in the Bible like David, who gave his own life, like put his own life on the line for the sake of the sheep he was guarding. And we think this is the kind of servant leadership that Peter expects and assumes is present in the church, is a kind of sacrificial, servant, others first kind of leader. But also think of what shepherds did. They led sheep to water and to food. So they nourished them, they provided for them, they they kept away enemies like wolves and bears and lions, so they protected and guarded the flock from things that could harm the flock. They also corrected sheep when they were going off the wrong path, 
and they would bring them back to the right path. And this is how Peter describes those who would lead the church. As you guard, you protect, you provide, you nourish for, and you correct. And you, when a sheep is going astray, you bring that sheep back. And he says, shepherd the flock of God. So it's his church. So this is how leaders are to lead in a servant shepherding manner. But it's not, it's Anthem Church is not my church. It's not Matt's church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the staff's church. It's God's. The flock belongs to God. And much like we were talking about stewardship in the previous chapter, this is another type of stewardship. That myself, that Matt, our elder team, are called to shepherd a flock that belongs to God. And it describes our leadership, but it also describes whose church this is. It's God's church. But is it God's kind of big C church anywhere, everywhere? Am I an Instagram pastor shepherding anyone who might come across one of our sermon clips? No, not at all. Sorry to burst your bubble on that one. Because Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Among you right here. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Which means I cannot, as a pastor or an elder, be legitimately responsible for people who are not among us. That is not whom God has called me to shepherd. I'm not an elder at large, wielding authority and insight and influence. No, no, no. I'm called to a specific people that belongs to God, and I'm called to lead in a specific way. Who are the elders of the church accountable for? What is a specific group of people that are known to the leaders, and the leaders are known to the people? Right? And even in Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is the key thing. We often get caught up here. Obey, submit. I don't like those words. Like, no, no, no. That's actually not the scary part. The scary part, especially for me as a leader, is this next part. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, which means one day I have to answer to Jesus for you. I have to answer to Jesus for the state of your soul, for the product of your life, for how well you obeyed and listened to Jesus and followed him in this life. Myself, Matt, our elder team, we have to give an account for you. And so let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Please, Lord Jesus, for that would be of no advantage to you. So In your obedience and submission to godly appointed leadership, they give an account for you, and it is to your advantage that they joyfully give an account. It is to your advantage, your advantage, that they do this with joy and not with groaning. So Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, right? And then he describes how to do that. And look at kind of these three key things. Actually, four key things. First, not under compulsion, right? That's what he says first, but willingly, which means those who would elder church have to desire it. And not only are they called and commended by others, absolutely, but they have to actually desire it. They have to voluntarily put themselves in this place of extra accountability and extra scrutiny, both by the Holy Spirit and by the church. Not for shameful gain, Right? So this is a killing pride moment, right? So this is not for shameful gain, church leadership. 
So people like myself, like Matt, like who are your pastors, elders, we should not be seeking this out to be personally enriched in money or in profile or in power or in influence. That is not our driving motivation. And not domineering, which means kind of leading in a way that uh, steamrolls people, but to do it, um, uh, to do it with humility, right? To lead with gentleness and with kindness and with care. And finally, as examples, so not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not domineering, but as examples, which means our lives as an elder team have to be open books to you. We have to also be an example. Are we worthy of following? Not that we're perfect, but can we say what Paul says? Follow me as I follow Christ. As you are looking at the lives of myself and Sherry and Matt and Alyssa and whomever might be future leaders and elders here at Anthem Church, are they lives you want to follow? Once again, this is not perfection. This is not comparison. But this is saying, are they following and obeying Jesus as best as they can? That's the question you ask when you show up at a new church. I want to know the leaders. I want to know that they're following and obeying Jesus. This is why we believe like transparency is such a big deal for us at Anthem because you can't follow us if you don't know us. And we can't be credible leaders if we're not known to the people around us. Now, much more to say on elders, but this is not a sermon on eldership. That was my kind of like pre-tour and then weaving it into the first couple of verses of this text to provide some context for why Peter is bringing this up at all. But he's not done. As he's rounding the letter, he starts to move from just kind of focusing on the elders and kind of building them up and exhorting them to talking to everybody else here. So he links those thoughts and broadens it to everyone here with three commands and exhortions. See if you can spot them here. First, in verses 5, 6, and 7. Likewise, you who are younger, which means in the same way that we've been talking about elders, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Okay, what is the first command here? Can you guess? First command, be humble. Be humble. That's the first thing Peter is getting at here. We can be humble. We don't have to be defensive or anxious. And I love that he gives that justification in verse 7. Because he cares for us. We can cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So we can be humble, not having to defend ourselves or justify ourselves or worry about our self-image or our pride because he cares for us and will look after us. There are those in this world who will resist authority and leadership and the call to those who would read 1 Peter and the call of those in our church is to actually walk in humility and to know that first and foremost, When we're talking about leadership, when we're talking about humility, when we're talking about submission, our primary dominating reality we have to understand is that Jesus cares for you. So we can be humble. We can be submissive. And we don't have to worry. Worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns and worries on our own shoulders instead of trusting them with God. So we can trust God because as our Father, And Jesus, our great shepherd, he cares for us so we can live lives of humility. 
Next, in verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. He said this a few times before to us already. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Right? So our enemy is looking for weak spots, looking for people to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? Remember, you're not alone in the things that you're facing, your struggles, your temptations. And in that, remember that you're not alone. Resist the enemy's plea to take the easy way out, to give in to sin or temptation. Stand firm in your faith. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. So his second command is to be vigilant. Be vigilant. I know it is easy to be comfortable And I know especially in America in the 21st century, it is easy to be laxed and comfortable in our faith. And here's the deal. That's exactly where the enemy wants us because then we're no threat to him. Be vigilant, Peter says. Be vigilant for the ways the enemy might lull you into ineffectiveness for the kingdom of God. And third, verses 10 and 11 After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The third command is to be hopeful. Be hopeful. Why? Because he who has called you will restore you confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you because he cares for you. And Peter ends with a few final goodbyes and notes after his instructions to the elders to leave in the servant-hearted way, remembering that the flock actually belongs to God. There's a defined flock for leaders to lead in such a way to bring contrast to leadership in this world. Not as meddlers in other people's business inappropriately, but proper overseers, shepherding, protecting, guiding, and guarding, and correcting the flock of God that is entrusted to you in an example. That elders are examples to the rest of the church. Likewise, everybody else, just like the elders, be humble, be vigilant, and be watch and be hopeful. Humble, vigilant, and hopeful because the enemy is prowling around, but we know the enemy does not have the ultimate victory. Jesus does. And on top of all of that, he ends with this part that we normally skip over. And we normally skip over these moments because it's like, oh, it's just Paul kind of like, it's the PS part of the letter where Paul is just like maybe sending some instructions or saying, hey, to a few bros or sisters. And, and, but I love these moments here. And I want to read it. I want to share with you why I love moments like this. He says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, which by the way would be a kind of a a biblical catch-all term for Rome or for any empire, right? So she, the church, who is in an empire who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in 
Christ. Now, I love these kind of moments in Peter and Paul's letters because it reminds us of the humanity of the gospel work. It reminds us of the humanity of the gospel work. As Peter and Paul will do this as well, they're, they're calling people by name, Sylvanus, Mark. They get call-outs for all time in the Bible. He's making arrangements. He's saying, hey, I've already written you about this. Hey, I'm going to be coming here soon. Hey, would you send some money to these people? The gospel adventure is a living, breathing work. It's a Holy Spirit-empowered, and it's people, right? This is not some abstract thing. It's people, and moments like these remind us of the humanity of the work of God, that God works through people. He loves people. This is not some just abstract system in the ether, but God is working through people like you and like me. But I love that it also reminds us that this letter and the Bible itself don't exist in a vacuum, right? We can study and look at a book or a letter academically and even start to judge or evaluate these kind of things some 2,000 years later. But this, led, this letter is not so much a, a historical document in so much as it's a manifesto to people under attack. This was a living, breathing source of life for the people who were receiving it. The Bible, and this letter in particular, does not exist in a vacuum. It's not a scholarly work on the part of Peter sitting up in his ivory tower just sketching out his vision for Christians of the church. He was writing to people who are being persecuted, who are suffering, who are scattered, who are in exile, not in their home, and desperately need encouragement just to make it through the day. This letter does not exist in a vacuum, and we don't receive it in a vacuum. We are encountering this letter together as a community at the height of a global pandemic and political turmoil, and and racial injustice. Those who are marginalized and thrown to the side are even more marginalized. Those who are being polarized and radicalized are even separating even more. And this letter comes to us in this moment. It comes to us living in the arguably the, the best, most comfortable time and place one could imagine. So what does suffering look like in that context? What does unity look like in this context? What does it mean to have Jesus first in this context? This letter did not go to its original intended audience in a vacuum, and it does not come to us in a vacuum. And Peter ends his letter reminding us that while Jesus is victorious, we know that the enemy is seeking to distract and destroy everything about the kingdom of God. And we live in an empire, just like Rome, just like Babylon, just like the Persian Empire, the Assyrians, just like Egypt, we live in an empire hostile to the gospel. And there is a certain way that we as Christians can live as resilient disciples, well, wisely, and wholly in our exile. So we live in the confidence and hope of all that Christ has for you and for me while being aware that the enemy is doing everything they can to tear it all down. And in the midst of that battle, Peter says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. In the midst of the raging spiritual battle, in the midst of the polarization, in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of politics, in the midst of race, in the midst of all of that, peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's how Peter ends his letter I think it's a good place for us to end our study in Peter. 
peace to you who are in Christ. Jesus, I pray that we would receive all that this letter has to offer us. That as we close the book on 1 Peter, it uh, doesn't stay closed. It's not a check off a list. It's not um, uh, just another book we can check off as having read through or taught through or processed through. Jesus, would you help us sit with the truth and the hope and the confidence that is here in the letter of 1 Peter? Would this be a book that we revisit often as we are living in our exile? And Jesus, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit and otherworldly and supernatural peace to be with the people of Anthem Ventura. Peace to all of those who are in Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Anthem, I love working through books of the Bible with you. I'm so excited for what is next. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you're watching in a backyard or a Zoom room, enjoy the the worshipful response you're about to have. And if you're watching us online, if you've been joining us maybe on Facebook or YouTube or something like that, here's my invitation to jump into a local community, whether that's us or one near you. Don't do this life alone. Peace be with you.